You are now tuned in to the Decoding Success Podcast, where we reveal game-changing habits, formulas, and routines from the world's most successful individuals to help you think and live larger. Welcome to the show, everyone. You are rocking with your host, Matt Labrie, on an all-new episode of the Decoding Success Podcast. And this ain't just any episode. This is not just a regular episode. This episode right here is going to be passed down from generations to come. This is going to be passed down to my children, my children's children, and so on and so forth. This is beyond meaningful. And the fact that you're tuned into this is really beyond meaningful. And there's a message within this intro that I really want you to pick up on. But you might be asking, why am am I saying this? Well, I hope you know, you are tuned into an episode with a Korean War veteran, an Air Force veteran, someone that was a 40-year term New York City Deputy General Manager of the Housing Department, someone that owned a business along the lines of their passion, someone that served the country beyond what I just mentioned, someone that invested in real estate, took care of their family, obviously a grandfather, an Italian-American who came you know from ancestors overseas listen this episode right here is with my 89 year old grandfather and you are going to hear throughout this episode what a man's man really is and obviously i have really large shoes to fill and if you ask my grandfather he'll tell you that he believes i'm filling them because he was uh, rather amazed at all the things that i have going on at the moment and he was also amazed at the fact that i gave him an awesome haircut during the beginning of this whole quarantine covid 19 situation but seriously i want you to understand that as you listen to this episode, you are going to hear stories that are almost hard to believe, but I know for a fact they're true. There's just one story in particular that's coming to mind, and I don't want to spoil it, but when you hear it, and it's about the Korean War, and when you hear this story, you are going to be blown away. And with that said, I don't want you to be turned away by any of these stories either. Listen, if you're sensitive and you don't like hearing about people owning guns and shooting guns, listen, you could turn away right now. I'll tell you that right now. Um, But outside of that, these stories are so powerful, and as mentioned, they're going to be passed down from generations to come. I want you to realize that... I'm connecting with my grandfather in this capacity. He's the only grandparent I have left, right? I want this to be something that influences you to connect with your grandparents. And you might say, Matt, my grandparents aren't around. If that's the case, make sure you're connecting with your parents. Make sure you're connecting with your siblings. Make sure you're connecting with anyone that is close to you and even the people that aren't close to you. We are all connected even the people we haven't met yet as human beings we are all connected we are all one and that's something that i believe we forget and we have these individuals in our lives grandparents parents children siblings cousins whomever and we could definitely get caught up in the day-to-day life and forget about them right and forget about connecting with them and forget about doing our due diligence and putting in that effort so i hope this episode serves as a meaningful reminder to you to make sure that you are putting in your effort even if that effort isn't reciprocated at least do your part right at least do your part and you are tuning into something right now that is beyond meaningful to not only me but also my family members who are going to be checking this out this is going to live forever right this is going to live forever so without further ado i bring to you my grandfather jim messina grandpa jim 
I am excited to have you and I'm grateful to have you. I've wanted to do this for quite some time. I've talked about it for quite some time. So thank you for joining Decoding Success. It's my pleasure. I appreciate it. So I always ask this one question right out of the gate. The show is called Decoding Success. In other words, I want to learn how people achieve what they define success as. So my question to you is how do you personally define success? Now you're 89 years old. We're going to go through your life resume in just a little bit. Now, I'm not, I'm not challenging you to ask you how would it be defined in the, you know, in the dictionary. I'm curious, like, what does success mean to you? Success means I'm enjoying myself and I have adequate funds to enjoy myself. And I like people and I do what I like. Yeah. So what... What helps you, I guess, especially, well, I know the answer to this. I don't mind you sharing this, but um, what is it that brings you joy and fun now, especially in these later years of your life? I'm a shooter. I knew that was coming. (laughs) I knew that was coming. Yeah. Uh, And there was a time where I actually bought a building with a couple of other men. But it was a big electronics factory. Right. And it, it adapted itself to ground-level building. I bought it. I, I don't even recall how much I paid for it. But we, uh, the, the, our group, we all threw in $20,000. Right. I designed a pistol range because I've always been a shooter since I was a nine-year-old kid in the cellar on 3rd Street and Park Slope, where I was born, in that house. And the building was 95 feet deep. And I had a rifle range in the basement at nine years old. My father used to pull his hair out. (laughs) Don't shoot that damn thing. And I tell him, Pop, I know what I'm doing. He says, I know you know what you're doing, but... I don't want you to do it. You're going to hurt somebody or you're going to hurt yourself. But I never did. Yeah. And I shot down there for a long time. How'd you get your hands on a gun at nine years old? I went to Triangle Sporting Goods on Fifth Avenue. And I think where it intersects with Atlantic Avenue. I walked in there. I had been saving money secretly. And I bought a 22 rifle. At nine years old, I bought a twenty-two rifle. Times have changed, huh? But at that time, you didn't need a license. You didn't need anything except money to buy the gun. Yeah. And I bought it, and then I went home. My mother saw the gun, and she had a conniption fist. And she says, come on, show me where you went. I, I took her there. And she went in and said, why are you selling something like this to a kid? The guy said, because we're in business to sell guns and sporting equipment. And he's a kid. He came in with the money to buy that gun, and I sold him the gun. She says, I want you to take the gun back. He says, no. All sales finally. You see the sign there? She brought you with you to the store? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. So I had the gun and 
It was there. I had to promise my mother I'd be careful, yeah. which I was. I was always careful. And I learned the hard way by doing as opposed to reading a book. Right. And I've been shooting since nine. <laughs> I love it. And I was accomplished. So you you said two things subliminally. Number one, you invested in real estate. And also, number two, you opened a business along yeah. the lines of something you were passionate about, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Now, I have a funny story. I remember this very vividly as a kid. The one time you might have ever yelled at me was in your gun range. I went to go pick up a bullet as a kid. I remember it vividly. <laughs> and I got yelled at because the bullet was still hot. Yeah. I'll never forget that. Yeah. That was, you know, I've obviously been there a few times, but that one time I remember very vividly. But outside of that, you mentioned growing up in Brooklyn. Um, I have a funny story. Mom and I were just on the beach with Ann Jane. And she, uh, Ann Jane mentioned that you used to walk around the neighborhood like you were somebody. What does that mean to you? I don't think I told you that, but she said that to me, and I started laughing because people say that to me too. I never realized that I was doing that. Yeah. The other fellows were always interested in shooting crap, playing cards. Yeah. Playing ball. I never played ball. I didn't. I read. And... I wanted to be something from a kid. I was Italian, Italian-American. My parents were Italian-American. When I went for a job, I remember being told, no, the Italian quota is full. And the man telling me this was Italian, and he was the person I director for the store. Loge's department store in Brooklyn, on Livingston Street. And uh, I said, what the hell does being Italian have to do with my getting a job? Yeah. And the fellow looked at me, and this guy was Italian. That was telling me, no, you can't, you can't, uh, I can't hire you. And I figured, this is crazy. I know I'm good. I know I'm a good worker. I do what I'm told. And I do it the way I'm told to do it. And I just kind of like made up my mind right then and there that I was never going to let anything like this happen to me again. Mm-hmm. And uh, I learned and I got jobs. And then I went back to this place where the guy wouldn't hire me, but he hired me. Really? Yeah. So what were you reading back then? You said that you were reading. You weren't yeah. out in the street playing ball. What, what was it you were reading? <laughs> there weren't like personal development books back then. No, 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 no. I read uh, Call of the Wild, Jack London. Yeah. Adventure stuff. Right. Because I, I've always had a very vivid imagination and when I was reading it was me that I was reading about and it was me doing the things that was in the book right and I 
actually, I love this. I love this. That's awesome. So would you, or let me ask you this. Obviously, I want to amplify your background. I know that you were in the Korean War. Is that why you went into the war, or were you forced into the war? No, I wasn't forced. I enlisted. I got a job. By that time, I was working at the housing authority. Got hired, and I don't remember the dates, but I remember they had a radio on. I was a plan. I used to handle the blueprints and things. And somebody switched on the radio, and I think it was Harry Truman. We declared war on Korea. And I'm saying, this country is declaring war on another country. That's crazy. Mm. And then I thought about it, thought about it. I'm saying, but it's my country. I told the boss, I can't want to take a break. Now, we were on Park Road in Manhattan. I walked over to Whitehall Street. And there's this big sign. U.S. Air Force. And I said, wow. And they're talking about a draft. And I said, nobody's drafting me. <laughs> Nobody's going to drift me. I went in and I signed up. Now, why do you feel like you didn't want to be drafted? Does it go back to that story you were just mentioning about having more control over employment when it came to that store that wouldn't hire you? Yeah, well, I have an uncle. And he got killed in World War No, no, it's okay. And I feel I can't let my mother go through this with her brother. They had to bury the brother. They sent his body back. And I said that my mother was never going to have to bury me. But I'm not going in the army. He got killed in a, a goddamn foxhole. Yeah. The German 88. Big cannon. Fired. And the letter we got from the War Department was that he never knew what happened. So it was a clean death. Don't worry. And I figured, no, no, no. I'm not dying in any goddamn hole anywhere. And I figured I'd go in the Air Force. Yeah. And at least when you die in the Air Force, you die with clean underwear. And that's the way I was going to go. So you mentioned that uh, you didn't want your mother to bury you, but there's a story that stands out to me. You can correct me if I'm wrong. You were in Germany. Yeah. Uncle Larry was in Korea. Yep. And you found out that Uncle Larry was hurt. And he didn't want to accept a Purple Heart, from what I understand, and come back here. 
So you decided that you wanted to go to Korea. And I went down to the orderly room. I saw the first sergeant. His name was Jim Ferris. His arm was like a zebra with all the stripes he had. I said, Sarge, I want to get a transfer. He said, what do you mean you want to get a transfer? You got a maid here. Where do you want to go? Right. He said, I want to go to Korea. And he looked at me, and he almost jumped out of the chair. And he threw me out of the office. <laughs> he threw me right out of the office. And I figured, okay, I'm not going to take this from him. So I went back the next day. I waited for him to be out because I was in headquarters. And as a matter of fact, I worked for the, <laughs> the judge advocate. They're the, the lawyers in the, they, they, put, they put people in jail. Right. And I worked there. And uh, it was a fantastic job. And it, it had side benefits too. Right. Because I dealt with ranking officers. I had two stripes on my arm at the time. If I wanted a car, I'd call the motor pool. This is Jim, send me a car. And no questions asked. There'd be a car the lot in headquarters parking lot. And I had, you want to say power, like a- Right, right, a, yeah, a influence, crazy, yeah. Crazy guy. I'd go in and out of the base, and they'd salute me <laughs> when I came in. Because they already knew I'm the guy that sends people to jail. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I loved it. I always, I always said that my four years in the Air Force were the best four years of my life. Yeah. It was magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. So what convinced you to want to go to Korea, though? Obviously, friendship. I taught Larry how to shoot. Is Uncle Larry older? Was he older than you or younger? Oh, yeah. He was... He was Two years older than me, two years older than me. But I taught him how to shoot in my range <laughs> downstairs in the south. And I, he was never really that great with a gun. I had to go take care of him. We we were we were like brothers. That's right. really what it was. We he was, he was my big brother, mm -hmm. and I had to go take care of him. Yeah. So I went back down to the orderly room and I told the sergeant, Sarge, let me talk to the major. And all of a sudden the door opened and the major walks out. Charlie Swain, he was a good guy. The man was a prince. And he says, uh, what's the matter, Jim? I said, I'm trying to get a transfer. And he looked at me. He said, yeah, this, yeah I, I thought, you know, I associated you with the conversation yesterday. He told me, never come back to this office unless I call you. 
They didn't want you to go. He wouldn't let me go, no. Yeah. And we had we went to a firing range. I mean, you're a GI. You got to know, know how to shoot. We went to the firing range, and I had a gun. And I was good. Yeah. I was good. Ever see cowboy movies yeah. where there's a can or something out in the street, and the guy goes, bam, and shoots it, and bam, shoots it back, bam. That's what I was doing with the carbine. <laughs> from the hip. Yeah. Not aiming, from the hip. That's how good I became. Yeah. The major used to give me cases, <laughs> cases of ammo, and a key to the Air Force pistol range, which was off base in Bitburg. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got, I got quite good. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, I find out I was made the personal bodyguard to the base commander. Meanwhile, I mean, I'm a GI. By now, I think I got three stripes. And when the horn blew, you got to be careful because the, the crap with the Russians and all that other stuff. Right. And as soon as boom, the siren sounded, I was there. And he comes out. You're supposed to have a machine gun. I said, I don't like machine guns, girl. He says, I don't care. <laughs> You're supposed to have a machine gun. You're supposed to keep me alive. Right. I said, I'll keep you alive with this. With the machine gun, you're dead. Yeah. Because I can't use them. I don't like them. Yeah. And uh, the sergeant, he overhears things, and he comes out and says, Colonel, let him keep it. <laughs> I know this man. Let him keep it. That's funny. And lo and behold, there I was. But uh, it, 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 was, it was good. The so, was was great. You said it was the best four years of your life. What do you yeah. feel like was the biggest takeaway from it? I grew up. Was it because you were forced to grow up? I mean, you were away from home. No, no mom and dad with you. Well, no. The responsibilities I had. I was the NCOIC non-commissioned officer in charge of the staff judge advocate section of the 317th Troop Carrier Wing. That was my outfit. Yeah. And I had to behave constantly. I couldn't afford to get into trouble. Now, you know, I'm a young guy. How old were you at that point? Well, I was draft age. 
they would have drafted me. Right. So you were above so 18. Was, oh, yeah. I was definitely above 18. I might have been 19. I might even have been 20. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But uh, it was... It was just something you 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 grow with the job, and my job kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I I was the first civilian, not civilian. I was the first enlisted man to appear as a defense counsel and a court martial. Yeah, I had a sergeant, and I think there was somebody else. They got into a, a bit of a brawl, and they were going to court-martial them and, you know, hurt them. And they came to me. I couldn't go to them. They came to me and asked me to defend them. And I said, yes. I asked, check with the judge advocate. And he says, sure, go ahead. Mm -hmm. He said, it'll be a first, but what the hell? Give yeah. it a shot. So... That's awesome. And I won. Yeah, I love it. I won the case. And uh, they walked out, and they were happy. <laughs> I was happy. Everybody was happy. And I was walking tall. Yeah. Walking tall. So you, you come back to America. You do 40 years Deputy General Manager of the NYC Housing Authority. Yeah. 40 years. It's a lot of years. I know. That's a lot of as years. As soon as I came back, I went back to the housing authority to get my job back. Yeah. Did they give it to you with they, open arms? They gave it me with open arms because of law. Mm. the law. I forget the... We have a, a law that says returning servicemen are entitled to their, their prior job if they seek it, and the federal government would stand behind you if you needed a lawsuit to make the employer take care. So I went back in there, and they opened arms, yeah, and the girl, now here we're going into the woman in charge of personnel. Reinstated me in the job at the salary I had when I was working there. Right. Meanwhile, I'm four years behind because I was in the service for four years. Right. And I said, I'm supposed to start with my annual increments. She said, That part of the law is optional. And I don't choose to exercise the option. I said, you don't choose to exercise. Who the hell are you? <laughs> and she says, I'm the one that's signing the papers to bring you back. I said, come on. The guy that I'm working with was away for two years in the Army. She said, yes, but he was drafted. You enlisted. And I, I couldn't believe her saying that. Yeah. In other words, I volunteered and gave an extra two years because the Air Force was a four-year stint. Right. 
she wasn't going to give me the, the, the back pay. Right. about that. Uh, easily, maybe $1,200. Which back but, then is a lot of money. Of course, back then it was almost a whole, whole, whole entrance, entrance level salary. Right. And uh, I never got it. Wow. But I said, I'm going to end up owning this place. And you did. And I did. So what, what was that like, taking over that, taking it over? I mean, you, you climbed to the top. Was it just hard work? Was it just showing up every day? No, no. You said taking over the cops. That came later. Mm -hmm. I was... What the hell was the term that they used? I was oversight for the Housing Police Department right. and New York City Police Department. Mm -hmm. Oh, you saw the badge. You saw the well, badge. of course I yeah. saw the badge. It's the, ba badge. it's the badge you, you came to the precinct That's to right. bail me out yeah. of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I used to deal with the commission. Yeah. And with the chief of the department, Bobby Johnson. And the word gets around. And after a while, it got around. And now I'm the king. <laughs> and I enjoyed it. Now, I never had a chauffeur, probably had a city car. Right. And it brought with me a lot of new responsibilities. Like I put two, I put two people that I knew in jail. I had to. Uh, they were getting paid off. And you were ethical. Oh, I never took a dime. Yeah, you told me that. Never a goddamn dime. And me, I, I warned these people. And the thing is, these two guys were close to Mario Biaggi, who was the congressman. Mm -hmm. For I don't know how many years he was a congressman. And they figured nothing's ever going to happen to them. And I got them to my office. I told them, I know what's going on. It stops now. When you leave here, you leave all your shit behind you. Yeah. They didn't. You had to do what you had to do. So I had to do what I had to do. Yeah. And I told them, I said, you got to go away. And they did. They got 20 years. Wow. One of them died. In jail? Well, he got sick in jail. He let him out. He died. Yeah. The other guy, he did the whole tour. Wow. They take off a couple of years for good behavior. Sure. And I told him, and I told his wife, I warned them, and I warned them, and I warned them. Yeah. But Jim, is there something you can do? I did what I had to do. Right. And that's the way it was.
Do you feel like being the good guy ever bit you in the butt? No, no. Well, things changed at the housing authority. Mm -hmm. And some of it wasn't good. Right. Some of it wasn't good. And we had... Politics reared its ugly head. We had Ed Koch as the mayor now. Right. By now, it's Ed Koch was the mayor. I had gotten a, a, a see. Joe Christian came in. Joe Christian became my boss. He was the director of program planning when I was the, the office manager. He was a colonel. Right. And I was a staff sergeant when I was in the Air Force. And he saw the record and I became his man. Mm -hmm. And then he got promoted to chairman of the whole housing authority. Right. And we went along. Ed Koch, while everyone said he was such a good man, saying, you know, an angel, crooked as goddamn sin. <laughs> And he had a guy, I called him the, the lieutenant. Uh, Capolino, Jim Capolino. He called up some favors, and I used to do them. Yeah, because they were all legitimate. That just needed a little push, and I provided the push. They changed our chairman. Now, Joe Christian became the chairman. They eased him out and they put him in a different agency. And they put an Italian guy in there. Popolizio, Emmanuel Popolizio. He had a mouth you can't believe. The guy had the command of the language that was un unbelievable. Yeah. But he also had the worst personality. He, 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 he was bad. Now, I'm not bad. And you don't treat me bad. I don't give a rat's bottom who you are. You don't treat me bad. And it was always, now I was in charge of the whole building. I was in charge of all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. Jim, get, come up here. Get your ass up here. Oh, boy. Hard work. What's wrong? It's cold in here. It's cold in here. I go in the room. And there's cool air coming up through the perimeter. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's what the perimeter is for. Right. And I look, this thermostat is up. I'm cold. And I, I said, okay, here, I fixed it for you. Of course, you can't you do anything right. I said, I try hard. <laughs> I try hard. 
smallers. Then I leave. And this kind of petty shit goes on and on and on. A couple of months. And maybe something in the wind. Yeah. Something in the wind. Now I'm a deputy general manager for housing authority. All of a sudden, I'm not the deputy general manager of Battery Authority. I was the director of general services, which is department directors are a dime a dozen. Right. And that that was too much. But I, I took it, and the soldier, I took it, and I get phone calls. There are more harassment calls than anything else. But uh, it was going on and on. They put me in charge of store, store, commercial rentals. Right. I'm asked to check out a building on Nassau Street. And I go there, I look at the place. I said, no, no. We're putting architects and engineers in here. They're working on plans. I can't see my hand in front of my face. Mm -hmm. The building was sandwiched between big stuff. Yeah. This space wasn't even rentable as far as I was concerned, but they wanted me to take it. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. Then I find out all of a sudden, okay, you, you're out of that. You're no longer involved in, in you know, the rentals and things. And I said, okay. And I used to go to work because I have fancy ass office. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful office. Mural on the wall. Oh, it was great. And I, I, I went there, then I get a phone call. Get your ass up here, I want to talk to you. And I get my ass up there. I go up. I want you to retire. You're eligible for retirement. Get out. See, I'm not going anywhere. I'm too young to be sitting on my ass at home. He said, you're going to go sit on your ass at home. How old were you at this point? 50-something? I think I was 60. Yeah. 60? That makes sense. You said you did 40 years. You came out of the, the Air Force at, what, 22, 23? So you're yeah. probably sixty, and you know, in your early sixties, then, right? Could have been, yeah, yeah. But anyway, then I I went up. I said, "Look, somebody died. Who died? My mother died." I said, "I can't be home right now." Uh, I'm not going to make it. He says, okay, we'll move the date. So if you don't give it, 
if we're going to move the date, I'll continually move it. Now the son of a bitch, I got an extra maybe couple of months out of it. And then New Year's, New Year's Day is when right. And that was it. What was your biggest takeaway out of that 40 years? Like, what do you feel like you learned the most over the course of those 40 years? That politics stinks. Yeah. And politicians think worse. Well, politics isn't everything. It's inevitable. Yeah, I know, but in all the years that I was there, I never let politics change you. Put a nickel in my pocket. Yeah. Never. Yeah. And I, I held myself up. Hey, no, I'm the, I'm Mr. Clean. Yeah, I love that. So you went on, you opened the business and lived your life from yeah. there. Obviously, family, a lot yeah. of travels. And I had, I had pistol range. Right. I designed that range while I was in the office because I wasn't doing anything. Yeah. I designed it, got all plans approved. I worked, I went to the building department. They didn't know. What the hell is this, Jim? I said, that's a pistol range. What's a pistol range? Hey, you go in there and shoot guns. Holy shit, we never had one of these. Yeah. They didn't know how to approve it or disapprove it. <laughs> so, the boss of the department there, the building department, I know him. I had a law because I was a boss of the department. And he says, Jim, what's the matter? And I told him, what the hell are you coming here with these people for? You should have put this on my desk. I'd have signed it and he'd have been out of here. I said, Irving, he was a joke. He was a joke. I just can't do that kind of business because then I'm putting you on the spot. Right. He says, you don't put people on the spot. Because I did him a lot of favors. And uh, I got it. And I think I owned that place 20 years, didn't I? I think it was 20 years. Stuyvesant. No, no. What's, what was it called? No, no. I, I shoot it, son. It was weird for you. Uh, uh, Seneca. Seneca Sporting Range. Seneca Sporting Range. Yeah. Awesome. So, to wrap this up, I always ask three questions. First question is, what do you feel like is the most monumental piece of advice you've ever been given? It wasn't really a piece of advice. Or you, maybe you could call it a piece of advice. My father, many moons ago, he said, you're working, you're doing this, you're doing that. He says, your name is Messina. We never spoke Italian in the house. Never. Because I don't know how. He said, you do nothing to stain the name right. ever, ever. 
and I never did. I never did. Yeah, you lived by that. Uh, and sometimes it was hard because sometimes the reward would have been fantastic. I but can imagine. Again, there's always the possibility of jail. Right. That Which is fantastic. Into the picture. Right. But uh, just from inside, I couldn't do right the crap that I I, I, I saw it being done. Oh, you scumbag! Yeah, I could imagine. I could only imagine. But I I, I I walked a straight and narrow. Yeah, this way I was never obligated to anybody. Well, I guess Joe Christian. He was a man that I I had more respect for him or as much respect for him as any other human being alive. And who was he? He was my the the, the chairman before the Italian guy Papalizzi. Right. And Joe was always I mean one day I went in and Jim, come in here. I go in, and he, he got an envelope on the table. He pushes his head over to me. He says, take that. Get that the hell out of here. I don't care what you do with it. Keep it. Give it away. Do whatever you want to do. Get it the hell out of my office. It was a Bitcoin money. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin money. Somebody had come in, they wanted a favor, and they left that for him. He never did the favor. Right. And he didn't want to take the money. And he said, no way. No way. Because he figured, uh-uh. I don't know where the hell this money came from. I don't know who's going to do anything with it. Right. But if it's traced to me, forget it. My career is over. So he said, just get it out of here. And I think I told the hell I gave it to. I gave it to a, a high-ranking police official. So he was like a mentor to you? Joe, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I named my son after him. Right. Joseph. Yeah. What do you feel like is a piece of advice you didn't want to hear? At the time, it was given to you, but it proved to be true over time. What my father said. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Why, you didn't want to hear it? I didn't think it was necessary. Yeah. But it proved to be true. Yeah, I mean, but uh, I wasn't made that way because our family life was always on the up and up. Yeah. Always on the up and up. What does that mean, on the up and up? Uh, nothing crooked. Yeah. Nothing crooked, ever. Yeah. If anything, we gave, never took. Yeah, which is a good way to we live. gave, yeah. It's a good way to live. Yep, it sure was. So if I could ask you one last question. I, I, I usually ask this in a different way, but I'm curious. We... People that typically listen to the show are my age, millennials, 27 years old. If you were sitting across from your 27-year-old self, what would you tell them? 
live the way your heart tells you to live. Yeah. Why would you say that? Because a lot of people want to do things and oh, I, I don't know if I can. But your heart's saying, do it, you jackass. You'll <laughs> like it. Right. I love it. Well, Grandpa, I appreciate this. I love you. Thank you for doing this. Oh, I, this, this was fun. This was fun. It was your first podcast. Yeah. 89 years old. You check it <laughs> off the bucket list. I love it. Thank you, Grandpa. Okay. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, a conversation between myself and my 89-year-old grandfather. If you've made it this far in this episode, I just want to say thank you. I truly appreciate you listening to this, and I hope that this serves as a sign to you in regards to making sure you're connecting with your grandparents, your parents, your siblings, everyone in between. Seriously, we don't have these people for this long, and you know, having a conversation like this and being able to emphasize the importance importance of these types of conversations although you know at times you may not understand what's being said or maybe you don't resonate or relate but just being able to learn from these people being able to learn what their life was like and understanding how what they've gone through paved the way for you right i think that's so powerful in fact i'm even getting a little teary-eyed just saying that right now but I just wanted to say thank you again. Make sure that you're leaving a rating and review. Hey, if you know someone that might want to listen to this, make sure you're sharing it. That always means the world to us. Like I said, that rating and review also means the world to us. If you haven't connected with me on social, go right ahead in the show notes of this episode. On top of that, brand new website out now in the show notes of this episode. Go over there, check it out, fill out the form. Let's get in touch. Let's get in contact, especially if we haven't been in contact yet. And until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.